Dr. Randy Newman is going to be opening God's Word for us this morning. I'm encouraged. We are encouraged to have him here, really for two reasons. One, he is an expert on evangelism. He is a senior teaching fellow for apologetics and evangelism at the C.S. Lewis Institute. He also served for over 30 years with Campus Crusade for Christ. He's written three books, including Questioning Evangelism. The staff read it and were greatly blessed by it and got to spend some time with Randy talking through it. But I'm also encouraged, not only is he an expert, but Randy is normal. He's one of us. He's not one of these guys who walks into a Starbucks and then five people ask him, what must I do to be saved? He's just normal like us, like me. And so he'll, uh, he is also uh, a member of this church with his wife, and so we are privileged to have him opening God's Word for us this morning. Let me read to you Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Pray, and then we'll welcome Randy to the pulpit. Colossians 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you might speak through Randy this morning, that you would give him the joy that comes with the gospel and the courage and the boldness to preach it from the Holy Spirit. Thank you for our brother Randy. Pray that you would speak through him. Help us to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome, Randy. Thanks. Great to be with you. That may be the first time I've ever been introduced as normal. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that my sons are not here because they would protest. But um, I am delighted to be here and to be part of this missions month and for us to be thinking about outreach. Let me begin by telling a story of something that happened to me not too long ago that um, got me thinking quite a bit about this whole idea about outreach. Um, I was on the Metro, our Washington, D.C. subway. Uh, The doors had just closed, and a man who had just gotten in announced in a very loud voice, May I have your attention, please? And he got our attention, because if you've ever ridden uh, Metro, you know people don't do that. People don't even talk to people next to them quietly, who they know very well. They have their earbuds in, they're reading their Washington Post. It's quiet. We're serious. And just to add to the attention that he had just gotten, the woman sitting right next to me across the aisle, we were very close to where he was, started screaming, no, no, no. I thought, we're going to be on the 11 o'clock news. Um, Everybody on the subway car was doing the exact same thing I was doing, looking at him, looking at her. He reached into his pocket, pulled out a book, and began to sing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Everybody exhaled, most everybody rolled their eyes, most everybody put their earbuds back in, went to the Washington Post. Except the woman sitting next to me, she continued to scream, Stop! Shut up! It was the oddest duet I've ever heard. (laughs) This is my story, no it's not! 
Did you know that hymn has four verses? <laughs> why do I tell this story? <laughs> when we're supposed to be thinking about outreach, here's why. I am quite confident that the vast majority of us will never do that. We'll never sing on the metro car as a way of witnessing. The vast majority of Christians are not evangelists. 99.9% of us here say, if that's what evangelism is, I'm not doing it. And I think we're in a world where increasingly more and more people might be like that woman who will tell us to shut up. So how, how do non-evangelists do evangelism? How do those of us without those set, that set of gifts do outreach? That's what I want to talk about. And the short answer is with tensions. It's not comfortable. But this passage that we've had read, I think, brings to the surface four tensions that we all need to live with that can then be realities in which we live and God will use us for outreach. So, let's look at four tensions in Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Let me just set it. Um, Colossians, you know, is a book about the supremacy of Christ, the deity of Christ, the greatness of Jesus. He's not just a rabbi. He's, he's God in the flesh who came to earth. And chapter 1 of the book of Colossians has some of the loftiest language about Jesus. All things were made by him and through him and for him. It's an amazing statement. Everything that exists, exists for the purpose of bringing glory to Jesus. And in chapter 2, it tells us that if we are in Christ, if we've come to this place of being identified with him, that we have fullness. And it, it tells us all of the great blessings about that. All of our sins have been forgiven. And in chapters 3 and 4, he starts saying, here's how it makes a difference in your life. It makes a difference in the way you think about yourself, in the way you interact with people in the body of Christ, in your family, um, how you deal with sin, how it starts making a difference in your workplace, and how it starts making a difference with those outside the faith. So that's where we land in chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. And the first tension here is a tension of both prayer and proclamation. You see it right at the beginning there. He tells us to continue steadfastly in prayer. But then almost without breathing, he, he shifts to pray for us that God may open up a door for the word. That this proclaiming of the word is such a supernatural event, it needs prayer. Uh, evangelism takes place at this absolutely astounding supernatural intersection of what people say and do and ask and listen, very human, almost mundane kinds of things, and also God working to do what only he can do. Raise the dead, open blind eyes, soften hardened hearts. And so a number of people have, have said we need to remember to talk to God about people and then talk to people about God. That we need to have a system in place where we're praying regularly for the people that God has placed around us. But do you note, by the way, that he tells us a few things about the reality of prayer. He tells us to continue steadfastly in it. Another translation says, devote yourselves to prayer. Why does he say that? I think it's because it's easy to quit. If there's one thing I've learned about prayer is it's easy to lose heart. That's why Jesus told a number of parables, so that we would stay diligent and steadfast. There's, there's something about talking to an invisible God about our visible, tangible world that, that sets us up 
for the discouragement that might come of, is this making any difference? And, and I think that's especially so when we're praying for people's salvation. We lose heart. Some of us have been praying for people for a long time, and after a while we just go, I don't know. He gives us a couple of encouragements in there. He says to be watchful and to be thankful or to engage in it with thanksgiving. So um, we pray. We have our list of people we're praying for. And then we watch to see how God is working to answer those prayers. And we keep, a tra- we keep track, a record. Um, we should, I hope you all have some kind of journal where you keep track of prayers that you've prayed and then how and when God has answered. There's something about having a written visible evidence that prevents us from saying, oh, God never answers any of my prayers. And when we see the line with the answer and the date and how God prayed, it it encourages us, it emboldens us to keep praying for the ones that still have a blank line next to it. So we need to have a commitment to prayer that is um, steadfast. I have to confess that I am resistant to praying diligently for non-believers because I'm pretty sure that God will answer and then I'll have to say something. And so very often I find myself hesitantly praying for them and then, Lord, would you also work in me? Would you set me free from my idolatry of my ease so that I'd be more concerned about your glory. Uh, No wonder that some uh, points in the Bible talk about wrestling in prayer. So, that's one tension, prayer and proclamation. The second one is about words and deeds, words and actions. There's a lot in this passage about words. Did you see it? Uh, Pray that God may open up a door for the word to declare, that's something that involves words. Um, pray that I may make it clear, so there must be some words that I could use that would be not clear. Um, how I ought to speak, let your speech be gracious. So there's a lot in here about words, but there's also, verse 5, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. So it's both words and deeds. They're both necessary. Um, There is some debate sometimes that people get into about which one's more important, our words or our deeds. I I think that's a silly debate. I sometimes wonder if it's like debating which wing of the airplane is more important. Uh, I fly a lot, and I want both wings to be excellent, (laughs) really excellent. Uh, Words without actions behind them can be easily dismissed, right? Right? And a lot of people are dismissing them. And and so we need some people in our lives who know us well enough, who have the closeness to us that they can tell us when we are not living in line with the truth of the gospel. That's the phrase, by the way, in Galatians 2 that Paul said about Peter. He confronted Peter that his actions weren't in line with the gospel. We need a few people in our lives who are willing to say to us, you know... I know, I know you say this, but, um, but we also um, think about, um, so that's, that's if there's words without the deeds. What if there's deeds without the words? People won't connect your deeds, whatever they are, to the gospel. It's too big of a gap. 
Um, sometimes you may have seen this uh, poster or a quote. Sometimes I've seen people wear it on a T-shirt. It says, um, uh, "Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words." Have, have you seen this? Um, um, I, uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Um, I hope you don't like it. <laughs> it's not true. It's not good. It always requires words. The gospel always requires words to be proclaimed and said. Um, some people attribute that quote to Francis of Assisi, but I, I did research about this, which lets you know what kind of a nerd I am. And so um, I don't think Francis ever said that, because we have a number of places where Francis of Assisi said, make sure your actions back up your words, and we would say yes. We also have historical accounts about how many words Francis preached out loud. He was a bold evangelist. In fact, we even have one historical document of people complaining about how loud he was. <laughs> I, I find that encouraging. So, um, it always takes words. Here, wait, I, I want to press this a little bit. I'll do a little thought experiment. Imagine you have new neighbors who move into the house next door to you, okay? And you want to greet them into the neighborhood, so you bake some chocolate chip cookies and you bring over a plate of chocolate chip cookies, which is wonderful. I'm all in favor of this. Here's what will not happen. After you leave, they will not say, I know why they brought us those cookies. They must know that God is holy and righteous. But they, even though they're created in God's image and he's planted eternity in their hearts, they've rebelled against him. And a great gulf separates them between them and their God. But God, in his mercy, in his loving kindness, in his grace, took on flesh and died an atoning sacrificial death. A propitiation, as it were. They won't say that. <laughs> no matter how good the cookies are. So sooner or later, we need to add words and connect them to our actions. This takes thought, takes planning, and it takes prayer asking God to give you the guts to start that process. Third, tension is a tension between grace and salt. Do you see it in verse 6? Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt. What, what does that mean? So that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. It implies that there's no one approach or one canned approach that works with every person in every situation and that our words need to have grace about them and salt. Now, the, the grace, I think we can figure out, our message should sound like good news. It is good news. It's, a, it's wonderful news. We can know God personally. We can have our sins forgiven. We can know for certain that we're going to have eternal life after we die. It's, it's, a, it's wonderful good news, and we need to find ways to express it so that it sounds like good news. We, yes, we need to be trained and ready to answer questions about why we believe the gospel is true. I'm all in favor of that. And, and we need to read some good apologetics books to know the arguments, why it's true. But we also need to be ready to explain why it's good. Why we're glad that it's true. How it makes a difference in our lives. How it's giving us a sense of peace when the world seems to be chaotic. How it gives us a confidence about the future, no matter what the future holds. How it's making us a better family member, a better worker, a better friend. How it gives us a sense of joy, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. We need to find ways to express it so that people say, that really does sound good. 
But we also need to have our words seasoned with salt. What, what does that mean? There's a whole lot of different thoughts about it. Some people um, simply point out that salt makes you thirsty, and so we need to say things in a way so that people want to hear more. Some people point that there are some rabbinic uh, writings that talk about the book of Proverbs and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament as a kind of salt. That things are said in a, almost a, a provocative way or a, or a cryptic way so that, wait, 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 what, what more is there to that? And, and this takes some thought to think of how, how do we communicate this faith that is both good news and bad news, isn't it? The gospel is bad news before it's good news. We have to see how bad our problem is before we appreciate just how wonderful and good the solution is. So we need to find ways so that it's both grace and salt. Let me give you a couple of examples. One is um, many of us here really appreciate and have learned uh, from Tim Keller's teaching and preaching. I've benefited tremendously. I've heard him tell this story that when he, um, when they first moved to New York and started a church there, they... um, uh, they met a lot of very, very secular, very sophisticated Manhattanites who wondered, okay, who's the new preacher in town? What kind of, what kind of preacher are you going to be? There's, there's so many different kinds of churches here. And a, and a frequent question he was asked is, do you, do, you, do you believe all that stuff in the Bible about hell? You know, all that stuff about flames and fire? Do you, do you believe that stuff? And he wanted to figure out a way to answer that didn't just shut down the conversation because does believe that. So he came up with this approach. He he said, he found himself saying this to people, well, you know, I think that stuff about uh, flame and fire, you could see it as a metaphor. But if it is a metaphor, it's a metaphor for something far worse than fire. Hmm. What? Wait, wait a minute, that, that is not what I expect. That is not what I wanted to hear. What do, you, what do you mean? We need to think through ways that get people thinking. Um, uh, um, I've reached the age, at, uh, and now I have an, in, an increasing number of wonderful witnessing opportunities to people in the medical profession. <laughs> good, you got that, good, good. And so um, I find myself sometimes uh, talking to doctors and nurses about what I do for a living. And uh, um, uh, several years ago, I had some very, very serious problems with my back, and I needed to get a number of uh, shots, injections in my spine. I know it sounds horrible. It is. It was. And, and it didn't work. Uh, so um, the, w- the way they do this is they give you shot number one, then you come back for two weeks later for the next one, shot number three, th- uh, two weeks later, and then it's supposed to work. And you get the same doctor and nurse doing this, and, and they, you know, they strike up conversation with you as they're about to do something painful to you. Have you noticed that? Um, doctors do that. They call it speech anesthesia. It doesn't work. And so... Um, there I was, and, you know, they find out, you know, uh, what I do, what kind of thing. Oh, you know, you're, you're, yeah. at the time I worked for a crusade. There's a lovely li- a starting uh, line. And um, so, you know, they, the way they do this, they give you this pillow to hunch over, and the doctor's behind you, and the nurse is in front. She got her hand on your shoulder. It's okay, you're not going to die. And, and so and I'm, I'm really squeamish and scared about this. So they think that they can just have, you know, light conversation with you, and that it's going to be just, you know, a normal... It's nothing normal. And so... Um, 
And then by the third week, they think that you're no longer scared. But I was just as scared. And so they, they, they felt like they had kind of built up rapport so they could say, so Mr. Newman, you, you're, you're kind of religious, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. And um, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very religious right now. And uh, so... Um, and uh, so the doctor feels the freedom to start telling me about an experience he had when he was in high school. This friend invited him to a church. And, and all they did there was, was talk about rules. And if you didn't obey the rules, you were going to go to hell. And if, if you danced, you were going to go to hell. If you drank, you were going to go to hell. If you smoked, you were going to go to hell. And, and then the nurse chimes in and says, oh, yeah, I went to one of those churches too. I think it's ridiculous. And, and so then the doctor says, so Mr. Newman, what do you think about that? I'll tell you exactly what I thought. I thought, not now. I don't want a witnessing opportunity now. I don't, I don't want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk to Jesus. Jesus, keep me alive. I'm going to die. So I bought myself some time, because I didn't know what I was doing. And I, I said, uh, you know, I'd, 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 I'd really like to talk about this, but I'm a little preoccupied right now. And the, and the doctor said, oh, yeah, yeah, like I was reminding him what he's supposed to be paying attention to, my spine. And then I started thinking, what, what am I going to say? What, what, what do I say to people who think my religion is just a bunch of stupid rules? And by the way, I think that's what a whole lot of people in our world think today. What am I going to say? So uh, when it was all finished and they stick, they stick around to make sure that you don't die, which is good, and the doctor asked me again, so Mr. Doom, what, what do you think about that? What do you, what do you think about you know, all these rules? So I said, well, I think we like rules because if we keep them, we feel really good about ourselves. And if we know people who don't keep them, then we can feel really bad about them, which makes us feel better about ourselves. And then I said, but you know, the stuff I need forgiveness for is so much worse than the stuff on those lists. I, I need forgiveness for anger and bitterness and, and uh, judgmentalism and, and um, thinking really horrible thoughts about people. And, and their, their eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And I thought, I'm just getting started. <laughs> it's a whole lot worse than that. And it is, isn't it? If, if we're really honest about what's inside, what, if somehow somebody could put up on a screen all the things we think, that stuff is so bad, it needs a cross. So I said to them, I said, that's, that's what I love about Christianity, is I, I, I have forgiveness for that kind of stuff. And I don't really know what they thought, and I, I, I didn't get to follow it up. <laughs> I have prayed for them a whole lot. And I have prayed that those words would be to them both grace and salt. That this good news is, you could get forgiveness for that kind of stuff. And we all need forgiveness for that kind of stuff. So we need to find ways to think through how do we express this so that it's bad news before it's good news. All right, one more tension. So we have prayer and proclamation, words and deeds, grace and salt. One more. It's a tension of reception and rejection. Now, the, uh, some people receive what we say. Some people reject it. 
Now, the, the reception part is not exactly expressed here, except that we have a book to the Colossians. So some people there must have received it. In fact, we're told in chapter 1, Paul commends them for their faith, and he reminds them that he, excuse me, Epaphras came and proclaimed this word, and they received it. And there's a church there now, and that people are talking about the Colossians' faith, which, if you do a little background about that city and all that's going on, it's pretty amazing. So some people receive it against all odds, against all predictions. But in this text, Paul says, I'm in prison. On account of this message, I am in prison. I'd say that's rejection. Everywhere Paul went, some people received it, some people tried to kill him. Some people said this is wonderful, other people locked him up in jail. We know eventually it cost Paul his life. He was executed for proclaiming the gospel. That's the way it's gone everywhere for 2,000 years. That's that's the reality of the gospel. Isn't that true about Jesus? Everywhere he went, some people said, this is the Messiah. Other people said he's demon-possessed. The gospel message has in it elements that cause some people to say, oh, this is great, and other people to say, uh, no, please stop. Paul said in 2 Corinthians that for some people we are the aroma of life, and for others we are the smell of death. So some people will say, tell me more, and other people will say, please stop talking. You can use the exact same uh, uh, words, the same expressions, the same diagram, the same booklet, give the same book, and some people will will receive it, and and it'll change their life. And other people will just, nah, please stop. Here's wonderful news. Some people reject it, and then years later, they come around. Sometimes it's decades later. There are some people who tell their story of when I first heard it, I got really mad and I told someone, don't ever say that to me. But then here I am now, decades later, loving Jesus. Um, A friend of mine told me about a story about how she became a Christian when she was in high school and started to talk to her parents about her newfound faith. And her parents wanted nothing to do with it. Her parents were completely secular, not religious at all, never went to church. Her dad was a pretty strong atheist, and no, 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 no. So she prayed, and she prayed, and she prayed for decades. And when her father was now in his 80s, living alone in a retirement home, his wife had died. He was a recluse. He didn't like people. He didn't like going out. Um, Just very, you know, just leave me alone. Some Christians moved into the community and started inviting him to church. No, 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 I don't do that stuff. my, My daughter's into that, no. Um, They just kept persisting, and I think they were devoted to prayer. And so they invited him to come on Easter, and he thought, well, if you're going to go, I guess that's the day to go. Side little commercial, it's coming up in a few weeks, that might be the time that people might come. Although, I don't know about that 7 a.m. thing, but anyway, um, (laughs) God is capable of doing miraculous. Okay, so... um, So they invited him to church and he goes to church on Easter and he hears about the resurrection and he hears about Jesus dying a death to pay for sinful people and he hears about the need to receive Jesus and trust him and be born again and he gives his life to the Lord. He walked down an aisle, became a Christian, called his daughter that afternoon. You know what he said? You never told me he rose from the dead. (laughs) I love that story. She told me, 
course I had told him about the resurrection. I told him a whole... I sent him books about the resurrection. He wasn't ready. So don't give up. Be steadfast in prayer. Be devoted to it. Watch. Give thanks. Ask God for wisdom and boldness and creativity about grace and salt. Make sure your words and your deeds are communicating and and, uh, displaying the gospel. And watch how God uses what we offer. For the people who do respond, it's the best news in the world, isn't it? It might even make them want to sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, thank you for the people that you place in our lives who don't know you. It's no accident. It's not a mistake that they moved into the house next door or they work at the desk next to ours or they have kids on the same soccer team with our kids. Would you work in their lives and make the gospel irresistible to them? And would you work in our hearts so that we have a heart of compassion for them? And that would you make us bold far beyond our natural abilities? And would you use us in the building of your kingdom? For we pray this in the, same, the name of Jesus. Amen.